I went from just literally thinking nobody would ever see this, you know, I might end up self-publishing it or something like that, to right, that my life's now going to change. And I, I swore, I don't know if we swear in the po- podcast or not. I don't. Say what uh, you want, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Yeah. <laughs> I yes, I I shouted out to the to the trees and the monkeys and the uh, all manner of insects. Fuck like that. Um, <laughs> I've said before, Proust had his Madeleine cakes. I had my human shit. Uh, was my catalyst to to eventually write it. So yeah, enough. Yeah, it was kind of like, do you know what? There has to be more to life than this. Do you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Your neighbour upstairs is hoovering at three in the morning, or your neighbour to the other side is shouting abuse at you, or the neighbour below is is dealing heroin and, and occasionally waving a machete around. If you reach the end of your tether, at the other end of the tether is a phone number, and that was my phone number for about 15 years. Hello, welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And today... An absolute cracker of an episode with somebody who I think was driven to the brink of desperation before writing his book, don't you? Yeah. And I guess people come to writing in lots of different ways and, you know, often feel a need to get their story out. And I think that is all the more true with Nick Pettigrew, who is today's guest. Yeah. So we'll tell you a bit more about antisocial in a moment. Before we do, time to focus on a part of the world we are being heard in that we weren't expecting to be heard in. Today is British Virgin Islands. Now, I know people who've worked there, but I've never been. Have you ever been? No. No, and I don't know anybody who works there either. I feel like it's quite a... It's mostly quite financial an... services. Okay. Yeah. Of anyway. course, you know people there. <laughs> We've clearly got, well, we haven't clearly got, but we've got nine people and the British Virgin Islands who are listening to bestsellers. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's four more than Japan, and it's a bigger place. So come on, Japan, up you go. (laughs) Again, I feel you should be generally kind towards all people, not like, come on, do better, let's make this a competition. More (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I also do feel at this point, I want to say that I did go away and have a look at, try to find out some facts about Luxembourg, and I haven't come back with that many facts because, you know, we mentioned these places, which is great, and I'm genuinely thrilled that people around the world are listening to our humble podcast. Um, But then I also feel really ashamed that I don't know that much about other places. So Mm. Luxembourg, looks beautiful from what I've been looking at online and I did not know apparently is uh, really good at wine winemaking is something that um, is very strong in Luxembourg I love that you've gone off and done some extracurricular research that isn't necessarily <laughs> I'm nothing needed. if not thorough <laughs> <laughs> Nick Pettigrew then spent his years as an antisocial uh, behaviour officer he explains what that is in this podcast and um, do we know um, there's kind of a tone warning, I think, on this because he tells a story about having to visit a place um, and the person in the place is a convicted paedophile. So you might want to just be aware of that story on its way. Yeah, definitely. Although I would say that I was... I wasn't apprehensive going into this conversation with Nick Pettigrew because, you know, obviously I'd read the book and so I kind of knew what to expect. But he has such a charming... And I mean that... I don't mean that kind of glibly. He sort of tells the stories with so much empathy and humanity um, that actually it's just enlightening. And I really, really enjoyed this one. So here is Nick Pettigrew uh, and his Phil to introduce him properly. Yesterday on Bestsellers, I first met at a publishing event in February of this year, and he was very excitedly telling me about his debut in publishing, which is non-fiction, and relays around the time when he was an antisocial behaviour officer. He also told me he'd been a stand-up comic for years, and we ended up speaking about that almost more than the antisocial behaviour stuff. <laughs> and now I've read the book, I understand how one fed into the other. <laughs> so we welcome to Bestsellers, Nick Pettigrew. How are you doing, Nick? I'm very well, thank you. Are you Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing I should have said in that intro is that this book was so fiercely contested by publishers 
So I want to know, before you even tell us about it and we get into the detail of it, how was it for you to sit down and write this and then all of a sudden be at the centre of a huge battle for your book? Um, it was really odd. It was it was a series of events. I mean, you mentioned the stand-up. I had uh, stayed in touch with a, a stand-up called Snorri, an Icelandic stand-up, lovely guy and published author. And it was, I think, January of last year, his agent had said, did he know anyone who was writing something who wasn't represented? And he very kindly mentioned me. So I met with the agent, told him about the book, which was to become antisocial. Um, and he said, yeah, let's let's see where we go with this. So I wrote the sample sample chapters, um, the, the, the uh, pitch document. And then I literally, I emailed it to him the day before I went on holiday. I just thought get it out of the way, then I don't need to think about it. You know, I had writer friends tell me it could be weeks, it could be months, you may never hear anything back. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. Um, so a week later, I was in the Amazon jungle. <laughs> Literally. Um, uh, we went I'm sure the, the mobile reception there is brilliant oh, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, pinch shop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was the thing, yeah. it was. Uh, we went to Peru, we were in the Amazon jungle, and the place we were staying had uh, internet for one hour a day. So mm -hmm. I just, we'd been there, I just thought, well, I'll check my message, see if there's anything. And I had about eight messages from my agent saying, can you call me, please? So um, I thought, well, that's either terrible news or good news. Um, so, yeah, so I took this call in the in the middle of the jungle with macaws and howler monkeys and, you know, massive butterflies and all this kind of thing. And he basically said, yeah, um, there's about 14 publishers want to wow. publish the book. Um, and he mentioned that an, an initial offer one of them had made, which was enough for me to know that it was going to get made. So I went from just literally thinking nobody would ever see this, you know, I might end up self-publishing it or something like that, to right, that my life's now going to change. And I, I swore, I don't know if we swear in the po podcast or not. I don't. Say what uh, you want, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Yeah. <laughs> I yes, I I shouted out to the to the trees and the monkeys and the uh, all manner of insects. Fuck like that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I found out the book was going to happen sort of initially in the middle of the uh, of the jungle. So I then came back home and then the the sort of the the bidding war. Start, and it seems really weird, it seems really sort of pretentious to say that, but it essentially that's what it was. It was a, 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 it went from this book that I never thought anyone would want to read to it being a bidding war, and and eventually we went with Cornerstone, who I have to say have been sensational from day one. They've been it was an easy choice in the end to go with them. So a couple of things. So when you got that call and you managed to get through to your agents in the middle of the jungle, I assume you were staying in a hotel somewhere. It was kind of like a lodge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was all open. Could, did, yeah. Did you go to the uh, the reception and be like, yes, I want to upgrade your finest <laughs> lodge? Well, I looked and I saw, what's the fanciest whiskey they've got behind the bar? <laughs> so yeah, I got myself a glass of very nice whiskey, which is not very thirst quenching when it's 100 degree humidity but um, <laughs> but yeah i did i celebrated as much as you can in the jungle and then when you go through a bidding walk can you just explain what that process is like because most people will never experience that um it, the oddest possibly one of the oddest experiences in my life essentially there were a lot of people who were interested which was superb i mean, I, I was bowled over by it. but essentially um what happens is um my agent, who's uh, Max, he's fantastic, Max Edwards, he sort of said to them, look, we'll listen to the five highest bids, um, and then those will be the people we go and speak to. And so that happened, and there were the five publishers who, who, who were the highest. Um, and he told me, he had to tell me this before, and he said, um, you, you're not interviewing for them, they're interviewing for you, because they want to buy your book. Mm. So I had this really strange day where... I had five meetings with five sets of people say really nice things about me and being sort of very British about it. Oh, no, 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 God, no, 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 no. Um, so, yeah, so you, you, you meet with the, the editor who's going to work on the book, publicity, and, and sort of various management people as well. We'll just sort of talk about their plans for the book. And as I say, Cornerstone was, was an easy choice in the end. Uh, my editor, um, Zena Compton, is, is just a genius. Like every input she's had in the book, she, she's always right. Don't tell her I say this, but she's always right. <laughs> and it has made the book 10 times what it could have been. And um, so, yeah, so that made it an easy choice. And to be honest with you, when we went into the meeting with, with Cornerstone, they made biscuits up, uh, little ginger snap biscuits with, in, the, in the shape of the letters, antisocial. <laughs> 
So I thought, oh, nice. you know, they've given me yeah. biscuits. I've got to go with these guys. Come no. on. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that comes up in the book as well, because you say about actually it's not all meetings with biscuits and stuff. And that budget went a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, well, absolutely. So. You don't get that in the council. So that, that swung me definitely. Um, look, then, let's start at the very start. Um, and you define it well in the book. But it, in your own words, Nick, what is an antisocial behaviour officer? When would we encounter one? Okay. If you live in social housing and say your neighbour upstairs is hoovering at three in the morning, or your neighbour to your left is shouting Kylie lyrics day and night, or your neighbour to the other side is shouting abuse at you, or the neighbour below is is dealing heroin and, and occasionally waving a machete around. Now, if you've spoken to them and they, they won't stop, if the police can't get involved, if you reach the end of your tether, at the other end of the tether is a phone number, and that was my phone number for about 15 years. So part policeman, part social worker... <laughs> Part council worker. Part diplomat. Yeah, part priest. Um, there, was, <laughs> there was a lot of jobs that it intersected on where you didn't have the powers that those jobs had. I mean, I was in no, no way a police officer or a social worker, but there was elements of, of, of that side of things, social work, youth offending, um, drug and alcohol awareness. You know, uh, I mean, I joke about being a priest. Sometimes people just want to be listened to, I think, um, about their problems. So it was all of all the Venn diagram circles where all those jobs happen, right at the edges where it stops really being their responsibility. Our job was sort of slap bang in the middle. And what was the impetus for actually starting to write this? Was it because you kind of just needed to get it out and it, you felt it would be cathartic or was there something else? There's a few reasons, really. Um, I mean, one of them was uh, I wasn't, seeing in like television drama or newspaper headlines or news stories i wasn't seeing the stories i was ex- experiencing every single day um you know i think it's people get sort of reduced to a, a tabloid headline or a broad brushstroke and the people i was seeing every day were, were really complicated there's a whole lifetime of experience leading up to them reaching crisis points so those are the stories i was interested in but wasn't hearing so i thought well if no one else is going to write them i will um part of it was i yeah i I think i was getting to the point doing the job that i didn't feel that i had much gas left in the tank so i thought i need to look at a different job um but the other one is, and I was, I was talking about this, it was October and I was in a, a block of flats. It was freezing cold, the wind was whipping in and I was taking a photograph of some human shit as part of my job. Um, so, yeah, so that was mine. You know, I've, I've said before, Proust had his Madeleine cakes, I had my human shit. Uh, it was my catalyst to to eventually write it. So, yeah. Enough. Yeah, it was kind of like, do you know what, there has to be more to life than this. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Um, <laughs> and did that photograph, did it win Shit Portrait of the Year? Well, you know, we played, so I was happy with that. I was, I was glad to have played. <laughs> I thought it was interesting, though, what you're saying about you. This, these stories weren't the stories you were seeing on TV, whether it's in the news or in fiction, because we spoke to Dorothy Coombson a few weeks ago, and, and she was saying... Um, She'd written the sequel to her best-selling thriller called The Ice Cream Girls and the sequel's called All My Lies Are True. Mm-hmm. And she was really uh, dissatisfied with the TV adaptation of her first book because she details domestic abuse quite a lot yeah. and abusive relationships. And she'd really worked hard and researched for her fiction book yeah. to present it as it tends to play out often. And she thought the TV version had just stripped all that background away and just left it as, as exactly as you say, that kind of broad brush, almost stereotype cliche. This is the type of person that gets into this relationship. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of then makes it really hard for people to empathize. Was that a, an aim of this book as well, that you wanted to, to sort of show that, you know, that person who you think is shouting down the street actually has a lot more going on and maybe you should be a bit more empathetic and sympathetic rather than necessarily being awful to them yeah no absolutely. i mean i listened to that podcast she, she spoke really really well i was bowled over by that um yeah i think that's part of it i think um you know i'm um, funny enough the meeting that we had with cornerstone they asked what you know what do you want from the book what do you want me to do and i, I thought well if somebody reads the book and then reads a tabloid headline if it makes them think for just two seconds well hang on it might be a bit more complicated than that um then that would be job done because i think unfortunately it is um People are reduced to that, to that, and and I think for me, doing the job, um, the antisocial behaviour wasn't the fire; it was the fire alarm going off. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the the actual fire itself is 
either they're having a mental health crisis or their addiction is is spiraling out of control or there may be domestic violence issues. It, it's loads of issues that that are causing the behaviour. But the bit that you see is the is the alarm going off, and um, and, and I think yeah, absolutely. That that when you see it portrayed either dramatically or in the news, they only report on the alarm going off, not on the fire that's caused it. So so that was that was definitely a motivation. Yeah. I think we should get you to read some because I've got some passages I've highlighted, Nick, and what I don't want to do is duplicate those <laughs> before you've you've read from from your book. So we should explain it's a diary format, this book, over a calendar year. So what have you chosen to give us as an excerpt? So this is an entry from uh, March, and it deals with a gentleman called Trevor. Okay. So I'd interviewed Trevor about complaints we'd received, that he was smoking cannabis in his flat and that he was playing loud music. He denied all of these and claimed that his neighbours were jealous of him. However, a few days later, I was walking past his block of flats when I heard the unmistakable dull bass thud of music being played too loud. I went upstairs and knocked on Trevor's front door. As he answered the door, I was overpowered by a wave of skunk. It smells like unwashed armpit, which might explain the name. There was also 90-odd decibels of Sean Paul. It was his 2002 hit, Get Busy, which recommended I both get jiggy and crunked up, neither of which I had any intention of doing, not 11 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, any, certainly. 90-odd decibels of Sean Paul is at least 88 decibels too many, I feel. So I asked Trevor how it was that people complained he was noisy and smoked weed. He denied being noisy and smoking weed, and yet here we were, with Trevor irrefutably being noisy in a flat that stank of weed. Yeah, well, it's a coincidence, said Trevor. This is the first time I've ever done this. Bearing in mind the odds of such a thing happening, I bought a lottery ticket on my way back to the office to write Trevor his warning letter. <laughs> uh, it's such a great bit that you've chosen to read for us because it sums up what I felt the, the tone of the book was. So that I was reading this last night and there were parts where I was having to stop and say to my missus, you've got to listen to this, listen to how funny this is. <laughs> and then there are other parts that made me feel really sad and that not only had the person you were dealing with been stuck in this system where there was no way out, but you were stuck in it with no way out as well. Was it intentional for you that you would make us laugh one minute and punch us in the guts the next? I mean, I think um, my sort of natural, and God, this sounds pretentious, but my natural register when I'm writing is is, is sort of comedic, is funny. All the other stuff I've written in the past has, has leaned towards that. So I think that's what comes most naturally to me. I think also as well, what I, what I absolutely would be mortified if the book was was you know this misery porn sort of awful story after awful story to to, to beat you know the reader into submission I, I wanted people to enjoy it I wanted it to be a book that you take on holiday do you know what I mean that that it, for it to be mm. fun but never I hope and I hope this comes across in the book never at the expense of the people I'm talking about it's never laughing at them um so yeah I mean I, I, I couldn't talk about the stories that were happening in my job without it having more serious elements and, and sort of sadder elements so that that was unavoidable um but i think as i say i i, I find it hard to write entirely seriously anyway so that was always going to be a mix no i mean you never i never felt that we were laughing at the people who needed the help i think what we're laughing at is how preposterous some of the situations are so quite early on in the book um you write I'll read the bit out and you can do the background if you <laughs> okay. want. But it's one of the more outlandish cases that you, you have to deal with. And there's a reason why I'm raising this, but you've, you've put, if you're 74 years old and have a heart condition and a permanent place on the sex offenders register, knowing you're going back to jail can place a strain on your nervous system. And this case <laughs> in particular, it seems such a, again, going back to your TV analogy, what the TV text would call an open and shut case. <laughs> and yet there's a massive delay in, in making sure everything's done properly. Can you elaborate on that one? That was um, that was a case that we had to deal with where we knew somebody was going to be arrested, um, and on the way to the, the visit, had a conversation, and, and it turned out this this particular person had been sending very abusive, very offensive letters to the police, um, really nasty stuff, anti-Semitic stuff, um, and so I asked the boss, "Well, how did they catch him? Because you know it's it's not easy." And they said, "Well, he had he'd licked the envelopes, and he, they had his DNA on file." So I thought, okay, well, he's not a criminal mastermind, clearly. Um, so I said, well, why would they have his DNA on file? They went, oh, he's a registered sex offender. So we were on our way to visit a Nazi sex offender, which is not the thing you do in a nine-to-five job normally. So, yeah, so when, when we got there, obviously the police had knocked on his door, and he 
dropped to the floor immediately. And initially I thought, yeah, he's playing up here, he's, he's trying to buy himself time or whatever. But no, he had a heart attack um, because he knew he was going back to jail, obviously. So yeah, so that was the situation that confronted us. Um, I don't know if you want me to go on to the second part of, of how much <laughs> I saw of, of... You saw of, a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, it was quite revealing because um, essentially uh, when people are given CPR, they um, have to cut the clothing off to, to be able to attach the electrodes for the, for the uh, resuscitation machine and so on. So it's literally just a set of scissors right down the middle and, and everything comes off. So I was phoning my boss to tell them that I was going to be a bit late coming back. This had, this had ballooned a little bit. This had got a little bit more complicated. Um, so I went upstairs, uh, a, a, set of, a, a story, and I was leaning on the balcony and, and didn't realise that I could see what was going on. And what I could see is as they were compressing his chest, was this Nazi paedophile's penis jiggling as they were compressing him. So, yeah, that was a how was today at work, dear, conversation in a hundred, basically. Yeah. I mean, just on that, you're married. And uh, what are those conversations like? When you get home, do you share a lot anyway? Or do you kind of internalise and just sort of like do the British squash it down? Oh, very squashy. Um, if, if, it's, if I know that it's going to be something that I'm not going to be able to compartmentalise, I'm going to have to explain why I'm sort of on a, on, on a, on a nine out of ten. Um, honestly, as often it was about office politics as much as the, the difficult parts of the job, you know, and, you know, people sort of saying daft things and so on. Um, yeah, I, I, would, I would talk to my partner about it. Um, possibly sanitized i mean um it's it's really been odd because i've had family members who've who've read the book since it's been out and they've all said i, I didn't realize your job was like this so clearly i, I was giving them the sanitized version mm. and, and did they know sorry Nat, did they yeah. know that you were on medication i mean i've been quite open about that um yeah i mean i i on my sort of facebook feed and stuff like that i i I talk about it quite openly. I feel it's one of them things where if you feel safe doing so, it's something that you should do if you can because it, you know, destigmatizes it. Although, as I talk about in the book, I, I think the whole Let's Talk campaign has run its course, maybe. Um, yes, it's good to talk, but again, using an analogy, it's, we're at the stage now where we're phoning the fire brigade, we're talking about it, but there's no fire engines. So mm -hmm. what do we do next? You know what I mean? So, but yeah, my, my, my family were aware of, of the issues I'd had, yeah. Because the only reason I asked that question, I didn't want to be intrusive, but each chapter starts off with a, a supposed password for your IT account, which gets more and more <laughs> kind of angry slash bereft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also the medication quantity and the, the uh, type of medication that you're taking that you, you put there. And, Obviously, uh, you don't need to be a genius to work out that as the book progresses, so does the medication dose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, that was honestly, I mean, that was, you know, the, those bits aren't made up though, in, in terms oh, of, okay. of my medication. That, that genuinely did happen. That was one medication wasn't working, so I was starting on another one, which gave me the most florid, hate 4K, high-definition dreams I've ever had. It was really, really odd. Um, so that's all true. And then, obviously, the, the less healthy sort of self-medication with alcohol was, was also true. And it's, I, I think, and I don't know whether this is the, the stand-up background, I, I, I have, I think, a less of a filter than I think a lot of people I know. Um, I'll be sort of upfront with stuff that, that I'm going on with. Um, so yeah, I don't know whether that's the standard background or so on, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the passwords do get a bit more frustrated. Um, I know Bill, you're a Villa fan. Have I got that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of them's Anfield, obviously. So you can probably guess my allegiances. Uh, <laughs> congratulations, uh, by the way, for staying up. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're the first man that said that to me, but, um, uh, congratulations back at you for, for winning the league after yeah, 30 yeah. years. That must have helped as well. That's, yeah. I mean, basically within 24 hours, um, I saw Liverpool lift the League Cup for the first time yeah. since I was 18. 
and my book came out. So it was 24 hours goes. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. So it was 2020 goes as well, really. I was thinking you've had probably, you've booked the trend, haven't you? Because most people have had a shite 2020 with COVID-19. <laughs> but with actually you being able to give up the job that was causing you all the stress and anxiety and to be able to write about it so articulately and to have great people like Frankie Ball eulogising your book, mm-hmm. you must be living the dream at the moment. It's It's been odd. And, and you're right, you know, people are having a terrible time. And, and I do, you know, obviously that that's what will, um, for me personally, it's been although what i would say is i've I've waited you know 15 years to be able to finally work from home and then bugger me six weeks later (laughs) so does everybody else (laughs) you know know, i can't win um but yeah yeah it's it's been it's been a a, i i wasn't prepared for it I, i certainly wasn't prepared for it and you know people saying really kind things about it and and obviously there's the 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 cover quotes and, and the sort of more famous people saying nice things, which is amazing. But since the book's been out, what I'm, I've been getting messages from people that do the job that say, yeah, that's what the job's like. And, and to be honest, that's as satisfying because I was really nervous. I really hoped that when the book came out, that people doing my job or youth offending or social care or anything like that would read it and recognize it. That, that was really important for me. It's it's interesting, I think, when you when you're reading it, and you you know you were just talking about there about how the medication that you're taking to deal with your own depression and mental health struggles is increasing throughout. Yet you sort of recognise it at the time, but not really. And there's that kind of thing, isn't there, where if you're going through something, often you're in denial mm-hmm. anyway that it's happening, and, and you detail that for so many other people in the book. So. I mean, you presumably this wasn't a new thing. This must have been going on for years and years and years. And, and that's the, the kind of the tipping point, I suppose. I know you talked about the human turd, <laughs> but it's like how you can actually make that break or see a way out. Because when you're so thick in it, it just feels an impossible task to try and break free. Well, I mean, I, I talk about it in the book. It's that sensation of drowning um, with the with workload and, and the pressures and so on. I was I was feeling that I was, I was getting to that stage where... That, yeah, you, you you feel that it, there's, there's sort of no way out of it. And, um, you know, I did try my best, and, and that was another reason for thinking um, that it was time to, to to end the job because I didn't feel I was giving or able to give 100% to the people I was I was meant to be helping. I thought, well, if I can't do that, then that's not fair on them. Do you know what I mean? That that, that I'm not able to do that. So, so, yeah, that was another motivation. Were other people telling you to quit? No. Um, no, they weren't. I mean, my obviously my partner was, was concerned about me. She could see the stress that I was under. But it was it was one of those situations, and I think a lot of people find themselves in, that I was sort of at a stage in my life and, and, and career where I wasn't really qualified to do anything else. This is the only job I could do, which in itself is a very specialised job. So the only other jobs I, I would be qualified to do would be on skilled jobs. And, you know, I've got a mortgage to pay like everyone else. I've got bills to pay. So it was that vicious cycle where I, I didn't feel that I could go and do something else because I would be start whatever the job that was, I'd be starting again from scratch. And that wasn't financially viable. And, you know, with, with the book, fortunately, that um, that pressure, you know, I, I, I keep saying, and, and my agent kills me when I say this, that I hope the job, uh, the, the, the book is a success and the writing is a success. But if it isn't, I can live off the advance until that runs out and then go back to work, basically. Yeah. I just wanted to say that I kind of fell into a trap there as well, just talking to you about leaving your job. And I think often language doesn't help us because the notion that you're quitting something Mm -hmm. makes you automatically feel like you've done something wrong or that you failed in some way when when actually this is the best thing that you could have done for your (laughs) health, actually. And you know, you, you talk kind of really eloquently about how, and you know, you were saying there about mental health and, you know, yes, talking is good, but actually it's, it's more, we need to be more active than that. And, and sometimes I think those little things like saying you're not quitting something, <laughs> you're actually, I don't know what a better word is, you're, you're, I don't know. Preserving your health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it depends who you ask, really. Um, I've had, you know, one person very kindly say, well, look, if this book raises awareness of the issues of antisocial behavior, how it's dealt with, how the safety nets for you could probably help more people that way than if, mm-hmm. if you just stayed at work. Although I've had another review saying um, that I've abandoned, you know, there's an internet troll, I've abandoned the people I was supposed to be helping at the first drop of a hat. And I don't know, 15 years is the first drop of a hat, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, the, the, one of the things that Natalie and I were chatting just before we came on the line to talk to you, Nick, and 
one of the things that struck me about this book was how if not you but for the people that you were helping if they get stuck in a system it's really hard for them to see a way out of it and quite a lot of the issues that you highlight are either addiction related or mental health related and you think well whose fault is it in the first place that they're even in that system never mind that they can't get out of it it's really hard to to apportion blame i, mean, I think um people get into situations and and i mean i always say look nobody nobody works as a dentist and wakes up when they're in their 30s and they're married and they've got kids and decides, right, I'm going to start smoking crack. That, that doesn't happen. You know, that it, these things don't happen in a, in a vacuum. Um, the, the same when people are struggling with their mental health. Um, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And, and the lack of care to, to keep them on, on, the, on, the, on, on the path, that doesn't cease to exist in a vacuum. That happens for a reason, and, and we've got to be honest about it, and it's things like austerity that cause it. So when people end up in those situations, a big part of our job was to say, well, look, what helps out there? How have they got to this point? Um, and, and there's usually a, a, a catalogue of reasons. I mean, I talk in the book about... Um, about cannabis factories, you know, there's a lot of opportunities were being used to grow cannabis in. In fact, most cannabis in this, smoked in this country is grown in this country. It's not imported. It's easier to grow it here. And I say myself, picture yourself. It's very easy if you're like me, sort of middle-aged, vaguely educated, sort of, you know, fairly secure. But picture yourself if you're in your early 20s, you maybe didn't get any qualifications in school for whatever reason. You're living in a, in a one-bed flat halfway up tower block. You know, you've got no money, no job, no prospects. Um, you're seeing people around you that maybe do have those things. Um, if you're in that situation uh, with no prospect of that ever changing, and then somebody comes up to you in a pub and offers you a few grand to sleep on your sofa for three months while they grow cannabis in the rest of the flat, I think it's very easy to say, no, I w I'd say no. It's exceptionally easy to say that unless you're in that situation. And I would challenge a lot of maybe put more right-wing uh, commentators who would say, well, no, 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 it's a moral choice. You should say no. I would challenge them to be in that circumstance and still say no. Although some of those commentators might say to you, well, Nick, you've been very open about your medication. So you clearly have had your own battles with mental health, but you're not running a cannabis farm out of your house, are you? Yeah, but I say that would then go back to, well, let's look at, how I how I got to where I am today. I've had a really supportive family, a really stable back, background. I was fortunate enough to to get an education when you could do that, and it wouldn't cost you anything. Um, and you know, I've got a very stable personal life. So I think it's very easy to say that you know, well, just just don't take drugs, just don't grow cannabis, don't deal drugs. That's really easy when you've got options B, C, D, E, and F. But if you haven't, then yeah, I, I think it takes a lot more gumption not to do it than, than people give people credit for. And I think it's also really hard when you, again, without sounding too moralizing about it, when all around you, you see so much reward given at succeeding in a financial capitalist society. So why wouldn't you want to buy a bite of that? No, it's presented to you. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if you're, um, if you're a street runner, <clears throat> excuse me, dealing drugs, you're probably doing 10, 12 hour days and you're probably getting about 80 quid for that. Do you know what I mean? So you can do that or you could take the train into the heart of the capital and, you know, work on the trading floor for the same amount of time and then a hundred times that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to say. And, and also, you know, taking that, that, that train of thought even further, that the whole idea of, of the capitalist inequality, that we've, we've created a society that values value or doesn't mm -hmm. value is, is humanity for its own sake. Um, you know, there's this conversations now about uh, university education. Only only allow people to go to university if the degree gets them a good job. Well, what about education for its own sake? What about education yeah. being value in and of itself um, and enriching your life? And, and maybe that's the thing that stops you going down a life of, of perhaps crime, perhaps of, of behaving, going off the rails. Um, so the whole system he's looking at and, you know, and I mentioned in the book the, the, the safety net that existed when I was younger that meant there was, a, there was a level of poverty you couldn't go below and that doesn't exist anymore. There's no floor. Um, and that needs looking at because that breeds the kind of behaviour I was dealing with. Yeah. I was struck by how many people that you deal with, I would call, you wouldn't, but I would call time wasters. 
and how they um i mean there's one guy i mean it's really funny this i don't really want to blow it for people who are going to read your book but there's one guy who thinks he can smell cannabis and yes. yet um you know several visits later down the line nobody else can that's a hilarious encounter there's a bit here i've highlighted to read you which really made me laugh although probably for the wrong reasons uh we should explain by the way that um, nick has changed all the names so i'm going to use mm -hmm. a name in a minute that's not the guy's real name okay mm -hmm. um Ian is not intimidated by legal action, though. In fact, he's so chilled out about it, he's choosing to represent himself. Before the hearing, he proudly mentions the degree he has in law as proof that he can handle this, which is like volunteering to be dropped into the war in Syria because you're really good at Call of Duty on the Xbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People like that must have been hugely frustrating, and yet there's quite a few of them, aren't there? It's... <laughs> It's maybe a reframing the same thing, uh, you know, you, you say about time wasters. Certainly when I was doing the job, they weren't time wasters. They were prolific callers, maybe. Let's let's call them that. And again, there's, there's, there's reasons. Now, sometimes it's it's loneliness. You know, there's, there's, there's a big issue that I don't think is talked about enough uh, in this country is the issue around loneliness, you know, people living on their own. A lot of times older people and, and you know, reporting something to the council is a conversation. It's human contact. And certainly in our job, it's frequently what we would go out and visit that person to take a statement and so on. So... Oftentimes, then that, that's probably the reason why they're reporting. There may have been something small that happened, some minor thing that they're using as a trigger to, to report it. So they're lonely. Um, so for me, to begrudge an hour of my day to give them a bit of human contact and speak to them and make them feel heard, I couldn't begrudge them that. I mean, there were other people that were repeat reporters and, you know, um, something wasn't happening and 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 for them i think their motivation was maybe difficult but i've had specific cases where i've had people make 10 15 20 complaints of antisocial behavior and there'd be no evidence of it happening in fact evidence to the contrary that the person that they were complaining about was on holiday at the time but the 21st time they reported what they reported happened and it was serious so you cannot go, oh, it's, it's Mr. Jones again. Let's just write, what he say, write down what he says and ignore it. You can't afford to do that because the 21st one would be the one where something serious happens and if you don't deal with it properly and something really bad happens, and I, I use this phrase in the book, what are you going to tell the inquiry? And, and you I, mean, I was going to say, yeah, that's, that, that passage that you write about, about is you can just feel the pressure when you're writing about it, about everything that you're doing being seen in an external sense. You know, like people like don't ever imagine that their emails are going to be read or that, you know, what you put on social media might be taken out of context. And you are very clear that every situation could be the catalyst or something that is then used if something goes horrifically wrong. And I, I cannot even comprehend how that must have felt on a day-to-day -day basis to deal with that knowing that in the back of your head yeah um it's not in this job one of the first jobs i got out of university was um a train company it was a call center and you book tickets for people and they get printed out and sent to the customers i learned from a very early age to be careful what you write down because there was a, a little box that you could write notes in and i thought that was just for us i didn't realize it was printed on the ticket because oh, no. what I'd written in that little box was, this bloke's a fucking arsehole. Now, fortunately, fortunately, somebody in the printing room was putting them in the envelopes, happened to see it and go, oh, yeah, no, let's not send that one out. So I was taught from a very early age to assume anything you've written down, assume anything you email, assume you're going to be happy with anybody seeing it, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the worst that would have happened in that would have been a, a very disgruntled customer. Um, but obviously, in, in, in my last job, not dealing with it properly could have, could have massive consequences. So you, you're, you're constantly aware of it, but it's not right at the front of your brain. It's, it's somewhere near the back. You talked about the stable upbringing that you had and the, the encouraging environment, but you're also very honest about the fact that you're not a million miles away from some of the people you were helping. You, you, were, you write that you occasionally as a family had to rely on food banks, which are obviously now more prevalent mm. in 2020. Yeah. Um, is that one of the reasons why you stuck the job for so long? Did you have that empathy that perhaps other people might have not had? 
possibly, yeah. I, I, you can't do the job without empathy. I, I feel it's impossible. You can't. You've got to have empathy for obviously the people complaining and, and the problems that they're going through. Um, but also, as I've said, the, the people causing these problems, because if you just view them as the bad guy and process them and, and only look at enforcement, you're not doing your job properly. So I, th I think possibly, yeah, that I knew. I mean, that was always a weird thing that I would try and tell families or, or the parents of kids who were causing problems that you know i i wasn't born in my 30s or 40s wearing a suit um and doing a, a nice job you know what i mean I, I i grew up literally you know the, the housing estate i grew up in was your, your classic 1960s concrete nightmare um that was knocked down about 10 years after it was built because it was falling to bits. And as a kid, I used, God, this sounds so uh, cliche, but I used to play in the, in the rubble of these knocked down flats, so like, like kids playing in bomb sites after the war. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think I had some insight to, to some of what people were going through. I wouldn't pretend that I was going through half of what a lot of our tenants were going through, but also I, I wasn't coming from, you know, a, a nice detached house in, 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 the, in the home counties kind of lifestyle. So I, I, yeah, that helped definitely. I mean, I think that I like to think that I am fairly aware of what is going on elsewhere in society, but there was one thread that came up quite a few times in your book, which I was shamefully unaware of, which was the notion that how people who are already vulnerable often get coerced by other people to come live in their property yeah. to then use that as the base to deal drugs or whatever it is they're doing. And then the horrendous situations that people who have somehow, it's like opening the door and letting the wolf in, right? And then you can't get out again. Completely, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't realize how prevalent that was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's even got its own name. It's called cuckooing um, for, for obvious reasons. And um, it's exceptionally hard to deal with because... Oftentimes you don't know. There was a, there was a really sad case a few years ago where a guy actually worked for the council, so he was doing a nine to five job, and you know he was turning up in work, going home, and nobody knew at home he'd been cuckooed and he was living basically in, in the attic in his flat in his house, and these people had taken over the rest of the property. So sadly, there are people out there that are predators, and they they will they will find people who are vulnerable. Um, often start, but that's preying on the on the loneliness as well. You're talking yeah, about too. I was just about to say, yeah, it's it's you know people don't and and this uh, um, this kind of behaviour is is also prevalent in domestic violence that they don't start with the violence and the threats and, and everything else. It starts with what looks like kindness and, and, and support because they have to get their foot in the door. But once they feel secure enough and, and depending on who they picked on, that can be days or weeks down the line, and then that's when the whole mood changes. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's out there and, and it's, it's really hard to pick up because as you can imagine, these people are terrified of telling anybody because they don't know that there's help out there that means they never, because there'll, there'll be cases, there's cases that I dealt with where when we found out, that person literally never went home again. They had to mm -hmm. just go somewhere else, got far away from that property. So yeah, it, that's, that's a really difficult kind of situation to deal with. Tell us about the stand-up, Nick, then. How, how many years did you do stand-up before? I assume it preceded this job, or did it run concurrently? Uh, no, yeah, there, was, there was an overlap. Um, I think, um, terrible, would not, I think it was something like about six years, six or seven years. Um, I enjoyed it. it. What it was, honestly, I, I, I never wanted to be a performer. I always wanted to be a writer, like from the age of seven. Um, so I was writing stuff, comedy stuff, sketches, things like that, and they weren't getting used. You know, It's very difficult to get into that. So I thought, well, if I go on stage and tell them myself, then at least somebody's, you know, it's not going to waste. So that's literally, I, I did stand up not because I, I'm a, a outgoing person or an extrovert. It's just, I wanted to be a writer. So, so I did that. I enjoyed it. I made very good friends that I've got to this day. Um, had some good times, did a couple of Edinburgh festivals. Um, but I always say I reach, I reach the giddy heights of competent. Um, <laughs> I, I would I aspire say, to those heights. <laughs> I would say at the height of my powers, if you went to a room above a pub gig on a Friday night and you'd paid like six, seven quid to get in, there'd be an opening act who was great. There'd be a closer who's amazing. And there'd be two acts in the middle that were okay. And I'd be one of those guys, basically. <laughs> so I think being a stand-up, because it's funny now, I, I see people that I gigged with uh, on the television now because they stuck with it and because they're really, really good. Uh, people like Sarah Pascoe and Joe Wilkinson and, and people like that who are just fantastic acts. And it, it, it's, there's the, again, another Venn diagram. There's, there's hard work there's, and there's talent. 
and you've got to have a combination of both. Um, and I knew that I wasn't naturally gifted. I, I knew that. Um, but what I wasn't prepared to do is what those guys will have done is gigging four or five nights a week and holding down a full-time job, getting in a car to Bristol for 20 quid, you know, getting home at three in the morning, getting up at six and going to work and just doing that for years. Um, it's, it's, it's a really hard apprenticeship and, I reached a point where I realised, you know, am I ever going to take that next step? And I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't. So don't regret it for a single But day. were you not because of the performance element that you didn't desire? Because the, uh, what you write, this book is evidence that you can write funny. Um, possibly, yeah. I enjoyed the time being on stage. Um, I did. It was, um, as I say, I, I just think most stand-ups reach a stage where, right, I, I'm, am I taking this seriously? Is this going to be something mm. I'm going to shoot for, shoot for the moon for? And I, I knew myself well enough. I was starting to not enjoy it as well a little bit, and that fed into it. And um, yeah, I just, I, I just reached that point where I could keep it as a. And I know many stand-ups who do is keep it as a hobby. They get the odd pay gig here and there, and they love it. That's that you know. Some people go gardening or paintballing. They they do stand up once or twice a week or, or something like that. But I don't know that I had the love to do that even though it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I, was, I think I was okay. I think it helped my writing in terms of, of, of trying to, you know, work on what, what will make people laugh or not. But, yeah, it's not something now I've got the time, you know, I'm not doing a nine-to-five job. You're not going to see me back on a, on a stage in a pub uh, in front of eight people again, I don't think. I was going to ask that because I think also I could be wrong, but I'm sure that most people trying to break into comedy probably aren't doing what you were doing as a day job <laughs> as an antisocial behaviour officer. So I think cut yourself some slack about what you were having to do there. Um, was your material when you were doing stand-up, was it the type of things that we're reading about? So taking people's stories from no, your day job? Absolutely. You know, I was always, uh, I kept it very separate, 100% not, um, because one of your tenants might be in the audience and mm-hmm. nobody wants to see them being themselves being spoken about on stage. So I always kept that very separate, even in my social media. I never really talked about what job I did. Um, again, it's been really odd that um, since the book's come out and people I know on things like Facebook and, and are very kindly bought it, like, I had literally no idea you did this for a living, you know, because I, I, I always try to keep it separate because it is that respect for confidentiality. And I, I took that extra step. So no, uh, my, my standard stuff was just box standard sort of observational stuff. Uh, um, yeah. So it, it was never about the job. What's, uh, what was worse for you? Um, was it seeing a Nazi paedophile's bits jiggling up and down <laughs> or getting heckled on stage? Did it happen a lot? Were the hecklers, did the hecklers come for you? Um, heckling is, is rarer than I think it is made out. It happens, of course. Um, I had one, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, it was a room above a pub gig, and there was about 60 people in, and there was a couple in the front row, a couple of women who had drank a bottle and a half of wine before the show had started. So they were in a state, and I was comparing that night. I was bringing the acts on and off and so on. So if you speak to a stand-up, compares have got a few different skills to deal with difficult uh, audience members sometimes they just want to be acknowledged so you speak to them hi what's your name what you do da, 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 da. so i did that carried on they were still interrupting the night so i did the nice thing just say hi guys really good you're getting involved but you know people have been working on the sets for years let's let's hear them out so being kind didn't work either so then i tried get the audience on side right who wants to hear the next act give me a cheer yeah who wants to hear these two guys see guys it's not me saying that's the audience you know so you try that that didn't work either so i then resorted to threats because they had their mobile phones on the table and the two glasses big glasses of wine so i picked the phones up and i went it's your phones or your silence which is it going to be and they went those are our work phones we don't care and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that that was a particular heckling that stayed in my mind yeah yeah, I, I do apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. <laughs> um, so obviously there was this huge bidding war for your book. Um, what is the situation for any adaptations in the pipeline, TV, film? Um, there may be an, an announcement shortly. That's all I can say. Was it as fierce as the bidding war for the actual text? Um, there'll be an announcement shortly. That's all I can really say. I'm sorry to be so hang on, hang on. Has Nick Pettigrew morphed into Matt Hancock? 
<laughs> yes, I, I, I refer the Honourable Lady to my previous answer. <laughs> Oh, well, congratulations for when that announcement happens. Um, yeah, I look forward to watching it. I thought um, on a similar vein, Nick, not, not necessarily an adaptation, but I could see you returning back to not quite stand-up, but maybe raconteuring this around the country. I know if COVID at the moment has killed all live work, mm. but is that something you would enjoy doing if you put on an antisocial tour and you played various cities where you maybe read excerpts, do some stories, read excerpts, take some questions? That's definitely an option. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount that, definitely. Um you know, it, it, I think it lends itself to it, I think, because it's quite anecdotal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would never say never on that. There's no plans at the moment. Um, but I think I think the, the book's success will drive that to a larger extent. If, you know, if the book does take off, then there's, there's an audience for it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's definitely a possibility. And now that you're a writer and you're in the writing business... What are you going to write next? Will you attempt to venture into fiction or are there more antisocial back catalogue stuff that we can get into? It's funny you say that. I, I won't name names, but um, one of the interviews I've done since the book came out, yeah. uh, one of the interviews said, um, so this book's come out now. So, you know, do you want to be a writer? <laughs> I, oh my god so, well, I, i've had a book published i think that counts but um i think i think i am uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I, I hope you replied well one day once i'm grown up <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, I, I was, won't be too harsh but anyway but um yeah uh, uh, definitely plans to write something else i've got two or three ideas that i'm sort of mulling over at the minute i'm going to talk with with the publishers and, uh, and my agent and, and see which ones uh they like the sound of um Obviously, which and as as alongside which ones I want to write, um, the, the, I will write another book. Whether there's anybody wants to buy that book, uh, we'll wait and see. But yes, yeah, so there'll be more more in the way in the pipeline. And do you think you're going to stay? Yeah, I was going to say, is it non-fiction or are you going to branch into fiction? It, it could be either. Um, it, again, and I hate for doing this. There's there's one idea I've got which is a non-fiction idea, and there's a couple of ideas I've got which are fiction, but sort of live in the same rough world as as as, as antisocial. And what's it like? I mean, we sort of talked about and obviously very uh, impressed by the bidding war for the book and things seem to be going incredibly well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's recently out. What is this period actually like when presumably you're just waiting to see if actually <laughs> the British public is going to buy it? Because everyone's kind of been sort of, you know, banking on it up to this point. But now's the kind of test. How's that feeling? It's really odd. It's, it's been I've not had too much time to think about it because as we're recording this, this is like... Oh, was it four days? I think after after release. So the first couple of days, day release, day after. Um, that's funny. I was talking with another writer who's from a very similar background to me, quite working class background, who had a book published when they were in, I think, their thirties. And we were having a bit of a laugh because we were sort of saying, "Oh yeah, the uh, the really hard work." And they were like, "Yeah, the the job we did was hard work. This isn't hard work." So doing interviews, you know, doing stuff like this is is a real pleasure. It's actually really enjoyable. It's not. I mean, I, I always say doing the publicity isn't work. It's what I do to make sure I never have to go back to work, mm -hmm, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so the past couple of days have been an awful lot of that, interviews and, and so on, and that's been amazing that, that, that people have wanted to, to hear that. Um, so it, it, it's sort of going to calm down, obviously, in the next sort of few days. So then it'll be a case of seeing whether it's taken off or not um yeah it's really hard to say it's really hard to say whether what constitutes success um i mean the the, the the feedback has been really positive i have to say people are saying very nice things about it so that's that's obviously very gratifying um so yeah we'll, we'll just wait and see whether whether it takes off nick it's brilliant let me just be, be clear yeah. about that it's brilliant and it's also really quick to read and because it's kind of what what hang on and then you get to the end of a month and you think well hang on that's not resolved yet and you want to it spurs yeah. you to go into the next month to find out what happened to that person and their inquiry and was it genuine or not and also just the eye-opening level of detail i don't know whether natalie you feel that you and i are biased because we've got a journalistic background but it very much reads like a, a an honest documentation of life on a you know in social housing in 2019 2020 to me yeah for sure Oh, thank and you. I think that helps that helps them with the the ability to pick this up and go and speed through it. You know, it's oh, well, thank it's you. really easily written for us to do that. Yeah. So congratulations on that. Well, thanks. I mean, it, it, I, I say in the start of the book, I, nothing's nothing's exaggerated or made off. It's it's if it's in the book, it happened basically. Um, but it was just a way of I think pitching that in a in a you know there are certain plotting sort of techniques stuff you can do to to make the 
the book read as a you know one, one of the nicest things uh Kitwal, who was very kind about the book she said it read like a novel which was a real compliment because it then it, it felt because i think a lot of um a lot of the conversations around the book have been about the stories in the book and, and the issues and, and all that kind of thing which i completely get um but to get a compliment about the writing rather than what the writing's about is is really gratifying and it's great for you know if you do want to be a writer then you can take that for yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know one day who knows <laughs> it'll work in your favor it's all good advice yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> um, so how much of a reader are you nick when you're doing this job would you kind of delve into it just before we get your recommendations would you kind of delve into reading at night as a way to escape um yeah i mean i've i've not been great re- i think sort of mentally I've not had as much bandwidth certainly with the, with the lockdown I had a real sort of blockage with reading um yeah I mean I, me too I, by the way yeah I think that's I think it seems to be common um mixture of sort of non-fiction um the, the fiction that I read doesn't tend to be dealing with the kind of stuff that, that my book deals with because I think I wanted like a, a break from that to some extent um but yeah I mean I, I I come from a sort of English degree background so yeah reading's always been a big part so what would you recommend as if other people want to pick up something right now, what kind of things are you enjoying? Uh, well, one of the things was I realized uh, I had some uh, audiobook credits that I did, I'd forgotten I had. So I've been making uh, going on walks, uh, government mandated walks, and <laughs> making my way through the Wolf Hall trilogy, which is, which is, I think she's got a future. She could be a writer one day, I think. <laughs> you uh, think Hilary Yeah, yeah, I think she's got a future. Uh, no, I mean, that's got there. I mean, we all know this, but it's amazing, amazing book. So. I, ha- I haven't listened to the audio book, though. Who's, who's reading them? Oh, gosh, I, f- I forget the reader for the first book, so I apologise for that. Uh, I think Phil's going to Google. Yeah. Give yeah, the, the title of the book again. Uh, well, I think because the first one is Bring Up the Bodies, I think. God, I'm really bad mm. at this. The second book is Julian Rintus. He's very, very good. Um, and I don't know who reads the third because I'm halfway through the second one at the moment. So they've been they've been fantastic, as I say, going on the walks. They've been, you know, I'm going on longer and longer walks because I want to get to the end of a chapter. Um, a couple of books I've read recently. There's one called The Five by Hallie Rubenholtz. And when you first say about it, you think, oh, God, because it's, it's a book about Jack the Ripper, and you think, oh, great, another one. But it's not. It's absolutely not. It's called The Five because it's about the, the five, they're called the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, the five that are always attributed to him. But mm-hmm. it, it doesn't talk about Jack the Ripper really at all. The book is not interested in him. What it's interested in is these, is these five women. And it, the, the level of research that's gone into it is staggering. They, they, you know, we go through their lives from when they were born, what their childhood was like, how they ended up to where they, they ended up. Um, and it reclaims their dignity, I think, um, from the, the ripper kind of industry. Um, mm-hmm. And it debunks, I mean, for instance, it debunks this idea that they were all prostitutes. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. And even if they were, so what? You know, so it's fantastic. Really. I that was I read it in a day. Um, it's a brilliant wow. read. So that's the five by Harry Rubenhold. And the one I'm reading at the minute is The Constant Rabbit by Jasper Ford. Yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I've heard it's really surreal, right? Well, I love his books. I, I, another kind of book I, I'm a real fan of is, I suppose you call them ideas books, things like Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett or, you know, it's just loads of ideas sort of fizzing out um, kind of thing. And he's he's fantastic at those. You just, you read them and, and you just think, God, there's like 10 really amazing concepts in one page. So um, I'm reading that at the moment and that's that's another another really good one of his. So that one's about, again, correct me because I haven't read it yet myself, but this is where there's something happens and a bunch of rabbits become human-like. Yeah, and... it's a society where humans and rabbits live as equals but obviously the book kind of uses it as a metaphor for racism and discrimination and things like that um yeah it would have been interesting to you nick because some of the humans you dealt with did live like rabbits didn't they i, I would never say that Phil. <laughs> of course no i wouldn't um absolutely <laughs> no uh yeah so so that's that's the one i'm reading at the moment uh, just before this is cracking it's really good uh, the wolf hall trilogy then were you a fan of downton abbey <laughs> I have never watched a minute of Downton Abbey. I, I'm sure okay. it's, it's, it's fine drama and, and, and really enjoyable. Uh, and I'm sure... Because Jude- they're narrated by Dan Stevens. Okay. Ah. Right, out. okay. Uh, Shot to fame in Downton Abbey. is now doing loads of Hollywood. What did we see him in recently? You might have seen him in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and there's something else where he plays a villain that's brilliant. Yeah. 
I don't know. I no, I'm no good at this. Very well. That's um. I mean, that's quite a coup. If uh, he's done all three of those, and that would explain go a long way to explaining your enjoyment as well as the pros obviously. <laughs> well, I, say it's, it's, I think it's Dan doing the first one the, the, the one I've got the middle one's Julian Rintut who's done the, the, the middle book oh I see right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the weird thing about like the audio books with my book I, I didn't want to do my audio book because I I wanted to get somebody good uh, so <laughs> but I was told with it being a sort of a memoir it, it makes more sense for the author to, to read it so that was yeah. that was an interesting few days realising just how much I hate the sound of my own voice <laughs> Oh, well, surely no. you must have got because the bit you read for us um i felt that your the fact that you've done stand-up helps with the humor because you know how to deliver a line oh it makes sense for me to read the book yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, that that makes logical sense but i just think it's a self-consciousness thing it's um and the amount of words i can't say properly so anything with sibilance in um so my next book is going to be like <laughs> hemingway it's going to be really monosyllabic and <laughs> really easy sentences <laughs> It's one of Daddy Baker's best phone-ins ever, isn't it, on the radio? Phone us up now and tell us the word you struggle to say. <laughs> How long did what's it take? Yours then, what's yours, Phil? Mine was... I've got a handle on it now, but for years, mine was... And I'm, I'm even coming out of sweat trying to say it was, was union, right? Because oh, I used to really? I used to go union, union, and I couldn't put the E in. I was kind of... I was axing a syllable of my own, union. <laughs> and it was like reading the news at one of my very first jobs. And I dread anything to do with unions or, or Labour Party having a dispute with the unions because then I could, you could, it's once you've got that fear, you can see mm. the word coming in the script. <laughs> like an iceberg. Into, yeah. And you think, yeah. And you think, how am I gonna, like, like a horse in the Grand National, I'm going to jump in this fence. You know? Yeah. My, I've got two. Go My on. two are statistic. Well done. Uh, so I'd always try and say stat if possible, <laughs> which I could get away with on Radio One, but less so in other places. Um, and also phenomenon. Yes. Which I can only ever say like that. Mm -hmm. If I try and say it quickly, it's like phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Exactly what <laughs> I had in my head. Thank you. That's not just me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Nick, it's been brilliant. We've loved chatting to you. Uh, it's a superb read. I encourage it everyone it's funny. to. Yeah, it's, it's funny and also it's eye opening. And um, there's some excellent thoughts from Nick at the end on how we can perhaps get ourselves as a society out of this situation and this ever decreasing circle that we find ourselves in. And so I implore you to go and read Antisocial and discover those. And let's see whether um, in five to 10 years some of those can come to fruition. But uh, congratulations, Nick. Thanks very much. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you. I don't know about you, Phil, but I love never being able to second guess where a conversation with an author is going to take us. <laughs> that's, that's the joy of doing this, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> some of those stories. Are... I'm staggered, really, having read the book and spoken to him, that he did it for so long. Mm. And I think yeah. it just goes to show, really, that um, in this line of work, even if you and I think we're having a bad day, we're not having a bad day, are we? Never, never. And I genuinely never take that for granted either because I am very aware of what luck uh, I've had to be able to do things like this for so long. And, um, yeah, again, I, I'm feeling quite uh, quite a lot uh, ashamed, actually, at how little I think sometimes I, I should do more, you know, when you kind of hear all these stories of other people and, and what genuine good they're doing out there in the world. And don't get me wrong, I do strongly and vehemently believe that uh, being open to different cultures and arts from different cultures is incredibly life-enriching. But I think when you're on that absolute borderline between life and death and helping people in the most dire of circumstances i have only utmost admiration for people like nick me too great mate wise <laughs> words <laughs> thanks now say union <laughs> so i'm going to say hmm? um because i want to whet this appetite well and truly is that wet with a correct uh, is that at the end of this month you're going to get not one but two episodes of this podcast with Lee Child and his biographer, Heather Martin. And yeah. I've been working on the edits for those in the last couple of days. It's as good as I remembered the recording being. Honestly, it was brilliant, wasn't it? We had mm -hmm. such fun with them. And I've never known Lee be so candid. And I mentioned this to Heather um, in a private message. That's obviously now not so private because I'm telling you about it. <laughs> and um, her theory was, and it's a good one, that Lee was able to be more candid in our interview because it wasn't his book. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So because it's yeah. her book, but it's yeah. about him, mm -hmm. 
So anyway, Lee Childers, you've or, never heard or of Or just because we're so good. <laughs> That's the other yeah. flip side to it, yeah. you know. Yeah, that we drew those elements out of you. <laughs> anyway, so Lee Child and Heather Martin coming up end of the month, and it's the first time that we've recorded such great quality with somebody that we felt compelled to put two episodes out yeah and also just to give a bit more context around that just before we did that recording I remember you being like okay now Lee Child's time you know it's great that we've got this but obviously he's got loads on so we're just gonna have to be really really good stick to the script stick to the questions that you want to get out there and then as it went on you were messaging me going I think we can just keep keep talking should we just keep going (laughs) he was having a nice time wasn't he so I thought I'm not gonna stop him it was a Friday night as I recall yeah it was late yeah it would have been Friday afternoon for him the states but anyway so that's on its way anything else to report um what else to report oh i just finished reading a book but i can't remember what it was now oh god that's so stupid <laughs> but it was that good that you want to tell us about it and you just can't remember its title oh yeah no of course i can i read right. it actually really quickly um it's graham norton's new one which uh, doesn't oh. come out till october 2020 right. um uh, it's called homestretch and yeah i was totally beguiled by it um yeah i'll tell you more about it another time when i when i've formed my thoughts in a better manner but yeah uh one of those things where i don't begrudge graham norton anything because i've interviewed him lots of times and been fortunate enough to chat to him and he's a genuinely nice guy uh, and really good at his job and of course he'd be an incredibly talented writer this is his third book you're a genuinely nice woman and you're very good at your job too so how did you um, procure this book uh how did I procure it because in the same way that we do other things where um we know that some books coming out and we say oh that sounds really good do you think we can get a preview copy of it oh, um, right. yeah and also I know the person who is his publicist oh good 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 because my copy hasn't come you see that's why I asked him but I know oh. you definitely would have asked because you're a yeah, lovely person of course. yeah yeah, so yeah. I'm, just, I'm yeah. just wondering why I haven't received my copy yeah I think maybe just a bit slack at your admin um, no, it's not that because um, you'd have requested it for me. So it's nothing. It's, on that occasion, it's not my. Do you, do you want me to chase it up for you, Phil? Is that what you're yes, saying? Please, yeah. Okay, fine. I'll do great, that. Yeah. No problem. Um, on I've it. Just, I've, for the day job, I've just finished Joe Nesbo's The Kingdom. Ooh, dark. Joe, Joe Nesbo's The Kingdom is very, very good, even if it does come in at 570 odd pages. Ooh, you are a stickler for a page count. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's work, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, I kind of feel like you should look at font size and line spacing as well, because that's not always uniform, is it? I see what you mean. It could be 570 pages, but if there's only like two sentences on each page, it's an easy read. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd love to know. So really, you've got to go by word count. Tell you what, I'll ask him. I I would imagine this book is at least 150,000 words, if not 200,000. Anyway, it's very, very good. Very, very good. So that's been occupying my time. And I've just started, for pleasure, the Richard Osman book. Ah, the Thursday, Thursday Murder Club. Murder Club. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, yeah, very funny. Uh, and it, there's a there's a great name right for a vegan cafe in there because you're you're vegan, aren't you? Or vegetarian? No, uh, pescatarian. Yeah, would have got away with it for those pescatarian kids. <laughs> and um, anyway, the cafe is anything with a pulse. I thought it was very good. Ah, yeah, yeah, that is good. That is good. Uh, and listen, obviously, I know this isn't a visual podcast, but for those watching in black and white, there is a really intriguing. Warhol Quartet over your left shoulder. Is it of you? No, it's of my kids. Uh, I am moonlighting in the corner of the house where my husband usually works and he's actually gone into the office uh, today um, and he looks out on the garden, which is much nicer than where I usually sit. Um, And yeah, he's got pictures of the kids, which is nice, and pictures of Hawaii. Oh yeah, lovely. And um, I'm just trying to see over your right shoulder. No, there's definitely not one of you there. No, that is, um, what are those Russian doll things um, called? Babushka dolls? Is that it? Uh, But it's of um, KISS. Um, So it's all the members of KISS. But thanks very much, Phil. (laughs) 